Welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. Good morning. Actually, here in Gloucestershire, it's rather foggy, so perhaps not such a good morning, and needing, therefore, to be enlivened by a reading of John Gilbert's essay, Collecting Ian Fleming, The Making of a Bibliography. This was first published in the Book Collector's Ian Fleming Special Issue for Spring 2017, and is here read by James Fleming. Like so many fans, I first experienced James Bond on screen, starting with Moonraker in 1979, then watching the earlier films as they were aired on television over Christmas or bank holidays. I would eagerly await each new movie release screened at the local picture house, and when my mother bought our first video recorder in the early 1980s, I would record the films and build up a collection of my own copies, watching them repeatedly until the tape deteriorated at the point where I fast-forwarded through the commercials. From my cinema visits, I would keep the James Bond film brochures that were produced in those days, and I would save up to buy the 007 film annuals. I did not read the original Ian Fleming adventure stories until I was in my late teens starting with Casino Royale, which absolutely gripped me, I raced through every book in chronological order until I had finished the final story, The Living Daylights, at which point I read the continuation novels commissioned by Fleming's Glidrose Publications. I was then surprised to find a couple of short stories which had thus far eluded me. I had been reading the novels in the Jonathan Cape-published hardback editions, so now I had to obtain a British paperback of Octopussy. Note the shorter title than Cape's Octopussy and the Living Daylights, which included The Property of a Lady. The last remaining unread story was an obscure tale entitled 007 in New York, which at that time had not been issued in the UK. It had appeared in the New York Herald Tribune and was collected in a book-form publication within the American edition of Thrilling Cities, a selection of edgy travel articles laced with intrigue and excitement often concentrating on the shadier side of glamorous and exotic locations. There, Fleming described his potentially dangerous encounters with the more colourful residents, ranging from chorus girls to mobsters. Ian Fleming had previously written a rather scathing essay entitled The Shame of New York, published in The Nation, which caused some embarrassment for his New York-based publisher, New American Library. By way of appeasement, and to aid book sales in the US, the adventure 007 in New York, which gives us James Bond's more favourable impressions of New York while stationed at the metropolis between assignments, was included in the US version of Thrilling Cities. I therefore had to track down a copy of this which was not so easy in those pre-internet days, eventually locating a volume in the second-hand bookshops of Charing Cross Road. This change of text for the American market was effectively my very first brush with the bibliographic nuances of the Fleming canon. I was keen to find out more. The British originals of the James Bond novels were fascinating to me. A uniform collection of books with striking cover artwork coupled with high-quality type design and layout, as you would expect from Jonathan Cape, 
the publisher with a reputation for producing stylish books since the 1920s and 30s. I was pleased to learn that there were a few useful checklists or guides to these first editions, which were a great help in my early days of collecting, but surprised to find that no comprehensive bibliography had ever been attempted. I decided to study the published works of Fleming and quickly discovered he was no one-trick pony, creating a literary and cinematic phenomenon in the shape of British secret agent James Bond is a monumental achievement. Yet towards the end of his writing career, Fleming had conjured up another unforgettable, gadget-laden hero of literature and the big screen in the form of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the magical car based on the aero-engined racer built by the enigmatic playboy Count Louis Zborowski in the early 1920s at Higham Park, Canterbury, and christened as such after the ritual noises produced when her powerful engine burst into life. This three-volume publication was the written version of the fantastic bedtime stories he concocted for his son, Casper, and tells the adventure of a magical old touring car restored by Caractacus Pot, a retired naval commander, the same rank Fleming had reached in the RNVR, and now family man inventor who bought the vehicle using proceeds from his ingenious whistling suites, which he had sold to the aristocratic owner of a large local confectionery factory. Like his famous brother Peter, Ian Fleming was also an accomplished travel and leisure writer, producing a number of popular lifestyle articles on Jamaica, his second home, and writing about pastimes including golf, motorsport, public transport, firearms, treasure hunting, typography, card games, roulette, skin diving, conchology, criminology, politics, book collecting, and fine dining. In his early career as a journalist, he was a successful roving reporter, securing several overseas scoops for Reuters, such as his coverage of the Stalinist show trial of six suspected British spies in Moscow, 1933, and an extended series of articles as the Times special correspondent concerning Soviet trade talks, 1939. I worked for the family bookselling business of Adrian Harrington Limited, and in my role as a book cataloguer, we use author bibliographies on a daily basis. The lack of a quality Fleming reference was becoming an issue. Alongside Arthur Conan Doyle and Winston Churchill, both of whom have been studied at length in terms of bibliography, Ian Fleming was rapidly becoming one of our most desirable and saleable authors, and as such we built a significant stock of the varied editions of his books, together with biographies and other material relating to the literary James Bond. Agent 007 is constantly discussed in the media, keeping his creator's profile high, aside from the regular lists of favourite films, greatest villains, most ingenious gadgets, and potential actors suitable for the leading role, the subject of James Bond has also attracted serious critical study, culminating in the first academic conference on Ian Fleming, fittingly held at the University of Indiana, where the original James Bond manuscripts reside. Bond's appeal is undiminished, and the character seemingly reaches a new generation of filmgoer or book buyer every few years when a new movie is released or a continuation novel published.
Inevitably, some of the new audience progressed to collecting the original books, maintaining a healthy second-hand and rare book market. As my stock in vintage Bond books increased, it became apparent that a large number of variations existed within and between the published editions of the novels, and thus the need for an in-depth study arose. We became a one-stop shop for all things Fleming, and in building many private book collections, we have been privileged to handle a wealth of important volumes and papers, including typescripts, inscribed and association copies, literary correspondence, overseas printing, screenplays, photographs, and original artwork. As this aspect of the business flourished and our reputation grew, subsequent relationships developed with the late Ian Fleming Foundation, a corporation dedicated to the study and preservation of Fleming's legacy, Ian Fleming Publications, the company dealing with Ian Fleming's literary affairs, and Eon Productions, the company responsible for the cinematic James Bond. In 2007, whilst consulting with IFP regarding a proposed collected edition of the author's works to be published in his centenary year by the Queen Anne Press, the publishing house formerly run by Ian Fleming and now in the hands of his niece and nephew, Kate Grimmond and Fergus Fleming, discussions turned to a bibliography of Fleming and a subsequent meeting was arranged with Mike Van Blaricum, president of the IFF and an active bibliophile and dealer-collector who long shared the view that a complete Ian Fleming bibliography needed to be written. Given carte blanche from the Fleming estate, we pooled our resources and the literary archives were thrown open for research. The next few years were spent painstakingly gathering information directly from Fleming's major publishers, Jonathan Cape, Pan Macmillan, Random House, and Viking Penguin Books. During this time, I viewed the Ian Fleming holdings at institutions such as Eton College Library, Fleming's former school, the Imperial War Museum, Fleming worked for naval intelligence during the Second World War, and IWM had staged a dedicated Fleming exhibition in 2008-9. The Fleming Collection, Mayfair, the West End Gallery owned by the Fleming Weifold Art Foundation, which held the Bond Bound exhibition in 2008, and the British Library. Prominent Fleming authorities were consulted, including the IFF directors Brad Frank and David A. Reinhardt, the James Bond novelist and historian Raymond Benson, and leading collectors James Picard and Otto Penzler, and the Ian Fleming Bibliographical Archive was assembled with the generous backing of Adrian Harrington Limited, the distributor of the published book. I continue to curate this archive, which now totals some two and a half thousand catalogued items. I was fortunate enough to interview several individuals who actually knew Ian Fleming. Not an easy task, given that the author died nearly 50 years earlier, and sadly, many of these luminaries have passed away since the publication of Ian Fleming, The Bibliography, in October 2012. The bibliography was certainly enriched through time spent with the Cape directors Graham C. Green and Valerie Ketley, 
the literary agent and former chairman of IFP, Peter Jansen Smith, the James Bond book cover illustrators Kenneth Lewis and Sam Pfeffer, Fleming's Jamaican neighbour and confidant Blanche Blackwell, family friends Janie and Charles Villers, and Ian Fleming's niece Kate Grimmond. Towards the end of 2011, following six months of in-house photography, the final draft was submitted to Libanus Press, who did an exemplary job on the typography. The corrected typescript totaled three quarters of a million words, and I recall there was a possibility of publishing the work in two volumes. This was soon disregarded as the costs, and therefore the retail price would have been prohibitive. Fergus Fleming and I had a number of discussions over the binding design, and it was decided that a trade issue in a durable red buckram plus a limited deluxe edition would be produced. Deluxe copies were to be bound in a gilt-tooled quarter vellum over black cloth-covered boards in homage to the original limited edition binding for Ian Fleming's 1963 novel On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was the only Fleming book to be released as a limited edition. Upon publication of the bibliography, this proved to be a desirable choice among buyers, with deluxe copies being sold out within weeks. Knowing there is such a fanatical following for James Bond, I had quietly hoped the book would be mildly popular among collectors, but I was genuinely surprised at the uptake, and never imagined that a bibliographical text, usually the preserve of catalogues and librarians, could reach such a magnitude. Favourable reviews were soon appearing, including a glowing account from the acclaimed Fleming biographer Andrew Lysett in the TLS, and a heartwarming blog for the Japanese market was penned by the crime and mystery guru Otto Penzler, who had confessed to me that it was his bedside reading. Given the size and weight of the book, I crossed my fingers that he didn't fall asleep with it. This book could split floorboards if slipped from one's grasp. As a result of such positive coverage, book sales were buoyant and despite its being a UK-only publication, copies were distributed across the globe. The bibliography specialist Oaknall Press of Delaware reliably handled sales throughout America, with copies being purchased by booksellers, auction houses, publishers, modern first edition collectors, James Bond enthusiasts and libraries alike. I was particularly surprised by the number of copies heading to museums and institutions. The National Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. took a number of copies for reference. The Victorian Albert Museum keep an example within their special collections. And the Georgia State University in Atlanta ordered a copy to be used as a consulting text for a Cold War module of a modern history undergraduate program. This made me immensely proud, and such placements for the text would have been praise enough but I was shocked and overwhelmed when the book was awarded the 2014 ILAB Breslauer Prize for Bibliography. Presented every four years, this is the premier international award for a scholarly work in the field of bibliography, which has never before been given to a work devoted to a 20th century writer. Arnu Gerritz, prize secretary and jury panellist, concluded, Ian Fleming, 
the bibliography, is in itself an encouragement to collect and outstanding proof that bibliographical scholarship is not limited to pre-1900 books and authors. That was James Fleming reading Collecting Ian Fleming, The Making of a Bibliography, written by John Gilbert and published in The Book Collector for Spring 2017. Why not check out our Great Collectors playlist for more podcasts featuring the biggest names in book collecting and bibliography? Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.